I'm turning this evening to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking tonight at verses 5 through 9, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. There are hymns and songs that we learn, and sometimes I think we get the message the first time we sing it. Other times, I think it takes a few weeks. I think we're often we're trying to learn a new tune and we're learning it. And uh, this is the third week of singing that hymn, learning that hymn, and especially that fifth verse about hearing his voice and us hearing him. It just really, really encourages my heart to think about the fact that we do have a shepherd. We have a, a shepherd who we hear him and he hears us. And it is God's presence that we so desperately need. It's God's presence we so desperately want. And I hope you know His presence. I hope you uh, have known His presence today. Uh, Some might say, well, of course we know His presence. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. You can have the Spirit dwelling within you and have forgotten His presence. Uh, You could just simply get on with the busyness of your day and the busyness of your life and you seemingly forget you have the presence of God. And I know I catch myself often having to remind myself uh, that God is, in fact, uh, with me. Uh, He is my presence. And uh, that really lays a foundation for what Peter is writing to us uh, in this text tonight. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 5, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. It's been said that we have that we forget more than we actually remember. Years ago I would have disputed that with you. But it seems that that does is the case. Year after year you forget something else. You forget things that you said, I'll never forget them. I'll never not remember this moment. I'll never not remember what happened on this particular day. And yet, you look up one day and you realize, I have forgotten. The scary thing about forgetting things is you don't know that you forgot them. So there are things that we have in our life that we don't even remember that we had. We don't even remember having them. We don't remember it ever occurring to us. So we have so forgotten that we don't even remember. But then there are things that will happen in our life and something will remind us of someone or something and we'll say, oh, I had thought I had forgotten about that. Well, that really, in a broad way, is what Peter is talking about here. He's talking about forgetfulness. He's talking about forgetting the things that were once so clear. You'll notice, uh, really, I I gave this a title tonight. I'm not sure the title is exactly what I wanted it to be, although it does come from the text. Verse 8, it says, If these things be in you and abound. That's the title tonight, If these things be in you. But it could have just as easily been verse 9. 
and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. How can you and I as believers possibly forget that we have been forgiven and purged from sin? How could that possibly be? How could we ever get to a place in our life where we forget about what Christ has done for us? Now, last week, we looked at being partakers of the divine nature, and we understood that that is spiritual life, that we have actually have spiritual life within us. It is the gift of God. And if we have spiritual life, then there is going to be spiritual growth. Uh, it is not possible for something or someone, rather, who has spiritual life that never grows. Uh, we considered that being a partaker of that divine nature, and we learn that it's not us becoming God, but we certainly begin to have spiritual life that makes us live and act differently, and it also makes us to desire more than just the status quo. We desire holiness. We desire righteousness. So tonight, as Peter writes to us, really these thoughts of if these things be in you, uh, he gives a list of a number of things that those who are partakers of divine nature should have and should give evidence of. You'll notice that list is pretty extensive. That list is not only extensive, it's very detailed. We're given diligence. We're given virtue. We're told to have temperance, knowledge, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. And he says very clearly that if these things be in you and abound, that you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. So if these things are in you, if there is spiritual life in you, you are not going to be barren and you are not going to be unfruitful. Now remember, Peter was writing this epistle to warn and preserve believers against the deceptive nature of some false teachers who had crept in to lead people astray. Deception, again, is difficult. It's hard to detect deception. It's in our world, in our day and age, I was listening to a sermon this afternoon, and he, was, he had a very interesting approach tonight, today. He was speaking about, uh, warning about what we can so easily subject our minds to. And he was using it in the realm of how easy it is now to just simply go onto the, the internet and go onto our phones and go onto our tablets and go onto our laptops and you can pretty much find anything you want and you can click on it uh, without really any discernment as to is what I'm listening to really the truth? Is what I'm actually hearing right? And you know that the Holy Spirit of God will instantly will instantly convince you that what you're hearing is not true. But a lot of times we say, well, I just want to hear what the man has to say. I just want to hear him. He's got an interesting perspective. Yes, we, we don't agree with a lot of what he says, but he's got an interesting point on this. Uh, Brother, I just say be very careful about allowing yourself to even introduce something that has deception in it. And Peter was trying to prevent them from being deceived from the false teachers who would come in. 
Now, we learned in verses 2 through 4 that it is by his divine purpose and power that God has given us all things that are necessary and needful and suited for spiritual life. Spiritual life also knows that we have a knowledge of Christ, and we learned that. Uh, Christ has called us by his own glory, by his own excellence, and as a result, we have, in fact, even now, all things that pertain to eternal life. We not only have them, we have a right to them. We have a right to them not because of ourselves, but because of what Christ has done for us. We've learned about the promises. Christ has given us these precious promises. They are great promises they, that we are not only partakers of this divine nature, but he says there in verse 4 that we have escaped the corruption that is in world in the world through lust. We dealt with this last week about how we are not to be ruled by the corruption of this world. Uh, we're not to be drawn in. We're not to be taken in by the corruption of this world. Now these promises that we have been given and these partaking of this new nature that we have, we, as Paul wrote, we are a new creation in Christ. We are new people. We are not the same. Spiritual life means we have a new ruling power. It means we are not ruled and governed by the lust of our flesh any longer. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not there. That corruption, that lust of our old nature is always pounding against us. It is always trying to convince us this isn't so bad. But we've got to remember that that's part of deception. Deception is, is it suggests to you that it's okay if you don't have this. It's okay if you don't do these things. But Peter very clearly says, if these things are in you, and it goes all the way back to spiritual life. Now, he is, he is making a presumption here because he's, this letter is primarily written to believers, not to the unbeliever. But he says, if you, if you have this spiritual life, if you are a partaker of this divine nature, then these are the things that are going to be there. And they're not just going to be there, they are going to abound so that you're not barren and you're not unfruitful. Now, by this new presence or this new ruling power we have through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we don't escape our own corruption and we don't escape our own depravity. Our human nature is our human nature. We still have that old man residing within us. And as long as we're in this world, we're going to battle against it. We talked at length on Sunday about what we're battling and, and dealing with the, the divine law of marriage. And we talked about the laws of gender and, and just the corruption and the lust that is just seemingly on every side. I think within a few hours today, I heard three or four different stories about some other avenue of either gender or marriage or whatever the case is. I mean, we're seeing it on every side. And that's why it's such, an, it's such an important issue. We're not going to escape seeing it. We're not going to escape not being around it. it. As long as we're in these earthly tabernacles, we are going to see it. But we're not to be governed by it. We're not to be ruled by it. Uh, these principles that he says, these things that should abound in us, uh, these are things that are contrary to the very way in which the world's governed. We're not, in a sense, spiritually governed by the world. 
And so we have escaped the corruption. Our new nature, our spiritual life, makes us seek something better. It makes us seek something that is godly. Every believer seeks after holiness. Every believer, outwardly and inwardly, is doing all they can to avoid the prevailing corruption of the times. Not trying to find a way to take it in, but how do I avoid it? How do I not let it take me in? How do I not let it take my children in? Every parent in this room, you're asking these questions. You're asking these questions. How do I keep my child from the corruption? Uh, you, can't, you can't take your child into a store without it being in your face. Target Corporation just proved that, right? Walk in the front door and it's right there. But because they were afraid of a backlash, they decided to maneuver some things. It's there. We are not going to escape it. God has not called us to go live on an island somewhere or in a compound with a 12-foot gate around it and say, just isolate yourself. But we are to avoid the prevailing corruption. We're not supposed to be governed by it. And like we said on Sunday, and I'm going to say again this coming Sunday, we're not going to compromise and just say, well, it is what it is, so I might as well just get on board with it. No, the reality is, is there's a right way, there's a God way, there's a holy way, there's a righteous way, and then there's the world's way. So Peter wanted them to understand the corruption of the times. We're not living in the first, this is not the first time that we've lived in corrupted places. Corruption and sin has been here. Uh, we always, we're always victims of the present. Well, it's never been like this. I would argue with you on the sense, go back and just read about the Roman Empire. And there's nothing new under the sun. Some of the things that were going on in Rome are just as bad or even worse, think about that, than what's going on in our society today. Corruption, sinfulness has always been here. But Peter very clearly says that there are things, and if these things be in you, then there is a result or there is a, 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 a common reaction or a response that we're going to have to those things. Now we see in verse number five, in verses five through eight, I've given these very generic headings and these, maybe these will help you tonight, maybe they won't. I debated whether or not they even needed headings tonight. But verses five through eight simply is, he that has these things, he or she that has these things, will be fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He that has these things will be fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And notice he uses the phrase beside this. Now, it's, it, it's an interesting way to explain this or to express it, but beside this is kind of one of those connecting words like a therefore or a wherefore. It's connected to the consideration of the previous four verses about the precious promises, about the divine power, about being partakers of the divine nature, about the knowledge of him, we're told in verse number three, being called to glory and to virtue. It's beside these things, he says, besides the consideration of this grace of God that we have and the promises of the gospel, we should seek to grow in the following things. 
We should seek to exercise our faith. We should seek to add to. Now, add to your faith here. We understand that faith is the very foundation and the basis of all our good works. Faith is the foundation of good works. Our good works don't lead us to faith. It is faith is the foundation. And because we have faith, that's the basis of all of our good works. Faith does not and cannot stand alone. So a person that says, I have faith, and that's it, and it stands alone, has not faith. Faith is not barren, and faith is not unfruitful. Faith always produces fruit. It always produces evidence of what's taking place. We know in James chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. No spirit, body is dead. No works, then your faith is also dead. So very clearly, Peter is saying, if these things, if you have the basis of faith, these things are going to be in you. Add to your faith. Now, he's not telling them to add something that they could not even add themselves. Remember, faith is the gift of God. You did not acquire faith. You didn't earn faith. It is the gift of God. They had faith. The like precious faith that Peter writes about. He even says, again, remember back in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. He's operating on the context that you and I have the same precious promise and that we have a common faith. This precious faith by the gift of God, which is the first grace that God works in our heart. The word add here is significant and it signifies that there is still things in our faith that are to be added to. In other words, it's something that the Lord adds to us, but that we are to strive for. Just like we didn't add our own faith, we are to strive to add these things to our faith. It's only the Lord that can add and increase our faith. The sense is, is that the faith is the basis and the foundation of all good works. Faith never stands alone. So what he says, if there's really faith, there should be diligence, there should be virtue, there should be temperance, there should be knowledge, there should be patience, brotherly kindness, charity. If these things be in you and abound, then you will never be barren or unfruitful. Good works should accompany real faith. It's evidence. It's proof of life. It's proof that what is there is real. Now notice he says, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now virtue here doesn't just mean morality. Uh, there are people who are not believers who have virtue. They actually have a moral code. There are things just like you they would never think about doing. They have morality. He's not talking about common 
virtue or common morality. He's talking about Christian virtue. What's the difference in Christian virtue? A Christian virtue is the, the result of the fruit of the Spirit. So virtue, Christian virtue, is the result of the fruit of the Spirit. That's why Peter is talking about that it will not be unfruitful. Galatians 5 Verses 22 through 25. Most of us are probably familiar with this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against which, or against such, there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So this virtue that he's talking about is a result of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Virtue in general here on these Christian virtues, the fruits of the Spirit of God and the results of His grace, they all spring from the grace of God. They are done by faith. They are done in faith. It's the Spirit of Christ in which we get the strength to live out the fruits of the Spirit. Why do we do it? We do it with a view to the glory of God. We don't do it so we can draw attention to ourselves. We don't do it so other people will say, look at the fruits of the Spirit that I'm showing you. We do these things to the glory of God. But then notice Peter says, and to virtue, knowledge. Now, knowledge here is not just general knowledge. It's not just knowledge of science and knowledge of math and of the world. It's knowledge of the will of God. To know the will of God and to have knowledge of the will of God is accompanied with the desire to perform the will of God. Knowledge of the Scriptures. The knowledge of the Scriptures will teach us that we are to walk a certain way. We're to walk in wisdom. We are to walk in a certain way. We're to walk worthy of our calling. We're supposed to be concerned about our conduct. Now I know over the last few years you start talking about conduct and people who don't understand the term want to shout the word legalist at you. They, they're just showing their ignorance. They don't even know what legalism is. If they're saying that what the Bible says you should be living is legalism, they're showing their ignorance. Legalism in its purest sense is just suggesting that there's another way of salvation other than through Jesus Christ. And if you think that there is, that's what makes you a legalist. But if, if I said from the pulpit today, you are to be holy... I am not being a legalist. I'm showing you what the Scripture says in 1 Peter, be ye holy for I am holy. So when we're told to walk in wisdom, it's not legalism. It's the natural outflow of faith. It's not a matter of, well, if I want to do that, he says these things are going to be, if they're in you, they're going to abound. So it's the knowledge of God's will. It's being a good testimony, being a good witness for Christ. Knowledge here, not only the knowledge of the will of God, it, it also means being wise. It means being prudent. It means that we will order our conversation and our conduct towards others rightly. Be concerned about how you interact with people, what your conduct is. Again, Pastor, that sounds a lot like legalism. That's not legalist. 
we are told to guard our testimony, to guard our conversation, to watch our conduct. And not just among brothers and sisters in Christ. You should watch your conduct to the unbelieving world. How you carry out your life, how you live out your, the conversation. Not just the way you speak, but conversation in the way that you live. It's being an example. It's the evidence of the truth of the things which are really inside of you. It's the works of your faith. That's what James was talking about. Faith without works is dead. And to knowledge, verse 6, temperance. Temperance is a word similar to self-control. To be temperate is to avoid excess. We used to hear the word a lot from pulpits, gluttony. You don't hear it much anymore. But we're to avoid excess, not just in eating, not just in drinking, but we should avoid excess in anything of this world. You can go to excess in materialism. You can go to excess in your entertainment. You can go to excess even in your friendships and your socializing. We, we don't think a lot about this anymore. We just simply cannot seem to get enough of a lot of things. Sadly, most people's understanding of the Scripture is, well, gluttony just has to do with how much I eat. No, it has to do with excess of anything and overdoing it. Temperance, avoid excess. What does excess do? Excess will hinder your spiritual growth. Excess will actually hinder your fellowship. Excess will actually keep you, again, I know, here I go again, it'll actually keep you out of the house of God. Legalist. <laughs> no, we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Excess things can lead us to a place where we do not exercise self-control. Again, we're living in a world that seemingly has lost contact with self-control. I mean, social media proves you just look and you say, wow, temperance was really needed there. Because that's a lack of self-control. Or in how, we, how we engage other people. So temperance is self-control. And to temperance, notice how he keeps building. These are like building blocks. Temperance, patience. Now we could skip over this because all of you have mastered patience. And yet patience is necessary for a consistent, godly Christian walk. Now this is not just patience when the person pulls out in front of you or goes around you because they can't wait for the light. This patience is patience when we are faced with reproach. Patience when we are being faced with persecution. Patience when we are even facing a trial from God. Patience when we're even dealing with the difficulties of ourselves. Again, the greatest enemy that you and I face is not someone on the outside. It's the person that looks back in the mirror at you every day. That's your greatest threat. You are the greatest threat to you. It's not someone else. It's, it's what stares, who stares back at me? Because that's where our great danger is. 
Patience is necessary. A man may be overcome by anger if he does not have patience. A man, a woman may be overcome with pride if they don't have patience. Jealousy, envy, and self-pity. Feeling sorry for ourselves. Yes, believing people feel sorry for themselves probably way too often. Nobody can throw a greater self-pity party than this preacher. I'm very good at it. Very good at feeling sorry for myself and very good at being angry at other people for not feeling as sorry for me as I feel for myself. See, those things and those aspects of our life, they require patience. Notice he doesn't leave patience alone. He says, and to patience, godliness. What is godliness? Again, some people would say godliness is just how you dress. It's how you talk, what you look like. Some people over the years have made mistakes by saying it's if you look this way and act this way. But this godliness here really has the intent of the fear of the Lord. Add to your patience the fear of God. Now, how do I really show the fear of God? And often when kids are here, I, I, I want to try to make this so that we understand it. Because when we see the fear of the Lord, we often just think, oh, I'm afraid, I'm scared, I'm frightened. But the idea of the fear of the Lord isn't, I mean, although we have this fear of God, we fear him for who he is, of course, we fear him for his power. But this fear of the Lord has more to do with how we inwardly and outwardly worship him. It's our attitude towards, towards who he is and what he's done for us. Believe it or not, how we worship God is not left up to us to decide what we like the most about it. Worship is actually regulated by the scriptures. Worship, we're actually told how we can properly worship God and how you can do it the wrong way. Now that's... That entire, that's for another whole series and another whole message that's coming later. But our worship is not regulated by what we feel. It's not regulated by what we want. It's regulated by the fear of the Lord. That's what the idea here is. The fear of the Lord, that's godliness. It's our attitude of thanksgiving, our submission. Oh, we have a, we, we've, we've mastered submission as well as, we, as well as we've mastered patience, haven't we? Because everybody here loves to submit to authority. No, that's another struggle for most of us at all levels. No human being likes authority, but yet we're called to submit at various levels. That's part of the fear of the Lord. Why do we submit to those who are in authority over us? Because we're afraid of the authority? No, because we fear the Lord. Why do we worship a certain way at this church? Because we fear the Lord. Why do you not see chaos in this building when you come and worship God? Because we fear the Lord. There's a submission and a praise that comes from simply with reverential fear, even hearing the word of God. How you hear God's word being preached even shows, do you really fear the Lord? In a day and age when churches now are more concerned about entertaining you with the music and 
just giving you a little sermonette, just give you a little nugget of bread to feed on for the rest of the week. But boy, wasn't the music good. You've missed it. It's When you hear the Word of God read, there ought to be a fear. There ought to be a submission to what I'm hearing. And that this is a desire that I want to grow spiritually. I've said it many times. We ought to come to the house of the Lord or wherever the Word of God is being preached with a desire to actually be changed by what we hear. Now, sometimes this godliness, this fear of the Lord, sometimes also include abstaining from things. Sometimes practicing the fear of the Lord might mean for the peace and the comfort of another brother or sister in Christ, our knowledge says, I'm not going to do something because it might cause that weaker brother or sister to stumble. It's loving someone else more than you love yourself. It's practicing godliness. That kind of goes right into verse 7. And the godliness, brotherly kindness. It can be said this way, without kindness, godliness, worship, and profession of our faith would be nothing more than a vain show. Without kindness, you can't have godliness. You can't have worship. You can't even have a real profession of faith. Love and brotherly kindness are evidence of a regenerated heart. Jesus himself said in John 13, verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Again, for those of you that have been in the faith for a number of years, that's not a new verse. And this one certainly is in Ephesians 4.32. Remember, sometimes we forget. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I bet there's not a single day that goes by that you don't need to remember Ephesians 4.32. I would almost submit and almost bet my life on it if I was a betting man. Every day we need to practice Ephesians 4.32. Brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, he just keeps building charity or love to all people. Jesus himself said we're to love our enemies. If you love your brothers and sisters, what is that? That's what you're supposed to do. But love your enemies. Now love in this example is more extensive in its object and its acts than brotherly kindness. Think about it this way. It's one step above brotherly kindness. And that's what leads us to where Peter says, for if these things be in you and abound, these qualities are yours if you have spiritual life and they should be increasingly abounding in you, they will keep you from being unfruitful in your spiritual life. These things, John Gill puts it this way, these things are wrought in you by the Spirit of God and exercised and performed by His assistance who works in His people both to will and to do. To abound means an increase in their acts and exercises by the frequent performance of them. They make you both by way of influence and evidence. In other words, we're to be working out these things. 
We're to be performing them. They that make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a knowledge of Him. We talked about this last week. There's a knowledge of Christ that is not only spiritual, but it's also experienced. We've actually experienced Christ. To have a knowledge and a spiritual and an experience of Christ is a soul not only approving that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, but places its entire trust and confidence in that Savior. In other words, what I'm doing is I am not just trusting Him for my eternal salvation someday when I die. I'm entrusting Him and placing my confidence in every aspect of my life. How I live, how I act, how I walk. When I give myself over to the glory of Christ and the glory of God, I am going to practically observe His commands and His ordinances in faith. In faith of what? In faith of Him. Everything that we do is because of our faith in Christ. It is because of our love for Him and that He first loved us. Now we perform the actions, right? We do these things, but we're doing those in faith. We're doing those as we're exercising the grace of God. Now what Peter means here by he's neither barren nor unfruitful, he's not barren or unfruitful in the profession of his knowledge of Christ. In other words, his knowledge of Christ is showing forth. So when these things are evident in us, it's showing our knowledge of Christ that He is in us and we are in Him. That's why the last verse of that song was such a, so fitting. His sheep hear His voice. They know it. They know when the Lord speaks. They know what's true. They know what's false. So He shows us in these first few verses, verses 5-8, through eight, he that has these things will be fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. And the last heading is simply, he that does not have these things is blind and forgetful of sins forgiven. Notice verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind. Now, almost every single time in Scripture when we see the word blind, we immediately run to spiritual blindness being spiritually dead. But it also has the meaning of being spiritually short-sighted or to not fully view. Now, I do not believe, and I wrestled with this this week, I do not believe that what Peter was suggesting here, that they that lacks these things is spiritually dead, they're on their way to hell and they're lost. I believe he's writing to believers who have forgotten because he says at the end of verse 9, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Which tells me that what he's, he's talking to people who've just simply and sadly forgotten what Christ has done for them. Remember, I started by saying we have often forgotten more than we've remembered. And it is not beyond possibility that we can forget just what it means to be a child of God. What it means to have your sins forgiven. To be spiritually short-sighted is to see only what's near us and only what concerns us that we get so wrapped up in it that we ignore what God has done for us 
or what we actually profess God has done for us. We could profess to know Christ in words, but our works deny Him. Now, in spiritual blindness, true spiritual blindness, you don't know Him. There are false professors in the world. There are people who claim to know Christ and they claim to be saved who aren't. Their life screams otherwise. But it also could be that we have forgotten. We've, we don't have that right knowledge of Christ. Or we only have a, just a general idea of who He is. But it's not that spiritual, experienced, and practical knowledge of who Christ is. Again, I believe Peter was writing to people who knew what this was because they were the partakers of these precious promises, the partakers of the divine nature. So I don't think he's using this as an evangelistic tool. But he says that he cannot see afar off. Now, in the truly unsaved person, we might say that person doesn't have any work of the Spirit of God in them at all. An unbeliever is void of God. They don't have the Spirit. They do not have the indwelling of the Spirit. But you and I are not void. If you are truly in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. But again, we are told to not quench the Spirit. We're told to be yielded to the Spirit. But sometimes we forget about that work. Sometimes we forget about the reality we begin to lose our spiritual discernment. Now, if I had not seen this personally in my own life and if people I've spoken with, I would say, how in the world does that happen? But if you've ever sat down with somebody who is, they have made a profession of faith, they've had fruit in their life, they've shown evidence for years, who suddenly begins to say, I just don't seem to understand what God is doing. Sometimes it's simply a loss of spiritual discernment. I don't think we know what a gift it is to be able to discern the truth. Everything that's been said tonight by the Word of God, the only reason we can make heads or tails of any of this is because the Spirit of God is teaching you. It's not because I'm standing here telling you, it's because the Spirit of God is giving us discernment. But there are moments in our life when we can lose sight of that. We can lose sight and seemingly we can't make the right spiritual decision about anything. Oftentimes people who have that loss of spiritual discernment begin to also question their assurance. They begin to say things like, God is so far away. God has seemingly moved away from me. Maybe I'm not really saved. I'm saying all that because the very next words that Peter says, he deals with assurance. And he says, here's the way you do it. Wherefore, the rather brethren, again, he's writing to believers, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, same context, ye shall never fall. So we'll deal with that next week. But we do often lose that discerning eye Sometimes we forget about the plague of our own heart. We forget about the depravity of our own sin. Sometimes we forget the lust that is still there. Sometimes we begin to lessen the sinfulness of sin, one man put it. 
Sometimes we just live with a form of godliness, but not really living in the power of it. We forget. That's what he says at the end of that verse, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. When we're forgetful, we don't think about the reality that we were a sinner. We were a sinner that was dead in our trespasses and sins. We were on our way to hell. We understood the scripture that says we were shaped in a sin. We were born in iniquity. We were like sheep going astray. And then Christ called us. Sometimes we forget and we lose sight of what we've been saved from. One look around society ought to show you in glaring and very loud what you've been saved from. That ought to show you what you've been saved from. Now we can look at it and we can say how awful the things are again. We didn't pull any punches on Sunday morning. We, didn't, we did not sugarcoat any of that. But when you see what you see, I hope you all realize and I hope you remember this, that it is by the grace of God that you've been saved from that. And that you're not one wandering around asking the same questions and living in complete and utter corruption and darkness with the gender nonsense, right? That is what you've been saved from. You're sinners. I'm a sinner. We forget. That's why I said I don't know if there's a greater opportunity for the gospel than in this what's happening right now and with all these things that appall us but I'm telling you, it's a wide open door for the gospel to go forth. I always think back to what Paul was saying in Corinthians. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. And but for the grace of God, you would be out there just like they are. The challenge is, have we forgotten? We, also, we ultimately know that only God can judge as to have we just forgotten or have we not actually been converted or regenerated? Someone who professes to have been saved from their old sins and been justified and they're now being sanctified by the blood of Christ and yet still lives without remorse in sin gives every reason in the world to believe they were never truly born again. They are practically declaring by their evidence that they are not recipients of mercy. But on the same token, when we live and we, as true believers, maybe we're not yielded to unbridled sin, but we live as and act like we've not been redeemed. Again, call it legalism, call it what you want, but the Bible says, be ye holy for I am holy. You can take up the argument with God. So what I think Peter is saying here is that if a man or a woman truly has been purged from their old sins, there may be times they forget. There may be times when they return back to their old sin and they live in the flesh, but they don't stay there. We would be, we would be lying to God to say, that from the moment that we got saved until now, there's never been a moment that we have not returned to our old lusts. It's probably fair to say 
our old lust showed up somewhere today. Maybe just was in our thoughts. Maybe it was just in our minds. I've heard people tell me by their own, I've told people tell me by their own testimony. They said, you know what? I, I always know how, I can get an idea of how depraved I really am. And I, I'm not sure we can fully get it. Because they'll say something like this, because of the wicked thoughts that I'll even have sitting inside a church, listening to the word of God being preached and where my mind will go. How could that happen? Because that's that battle. That's that battle that's going on within us that that old nature is still pounding at you. Doesn't mean you're unsaved, but it's a reminder. It's a reminder of who you are, what you've been saved from, and that were it not for the grace of God, where would you be? Don't forget that you've been cleansed from sin through Jesus Christ. Peter was not writing to pagans. He wasn't writing to unbelievers, but he was writing to Christians who can become spiritually short-sighted because they forget that they were cleansed from their sins. Even David understood the tendency to forget. Psalm 103.2, he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. <laughs> Let me just say in closing, remember back to when you first realized your sins were forgiven. Think back to the moment, again, not emotionalism, but think to the peace and the joy it brought to your soul. There is nothing greater than talking to somebody who just came to the realization that Christ saved them. It's the best conversations I've ever had. When someone fully, Christ saves them right then and they're telling you and they're explaining to you what happened to them, man, there's nothing like it. But it's easy to get caught up in the things of this life and to forget what God has done for you personally, what God has done for you through Christ. He has forgiven our sins and he's made us clean. Peter reminds them, if these things be in you and abound, their spiritual life, if there's spiritual life, there will be spiritual growth. Remember to add to your faith. Don't allow yourself to forget. Don't allow yourself to be short-sighted and only concerned about the things around you. But remember what you've been purged from and that Christ has saved you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can know and be assured of our salvation. Father, I thank you for this passage. I pray, Lord, that it has encouraged our heart. It's brought each one of us into remembrance of what has been done for us that are in Christ, that we, are, we know that we're saved. But the Father, that we would be brought to repentance if need be, that we have allowed ourselves to forget of what we've been purged and cleansed from. Father, help us to guard and to watch our conduct and our conversation. Lord, to live a life that gives evidence and demonstrates saving faith. Lord, we thank you for all that has been done for us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for each of his people. We ask all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's finish by singing the hymn.